Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, I am so excited to be here talking with um, one of my good friends for the Society of the History of Children and Youth. My name is Robin Morris, and I am an Associate Professor of History at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am here with my friend, Kyle Siani, who I met four years ago, I was just thinking that, at an NEH summer workshop. Um, so it's really nice to see you again. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Robin. So thank, first of all, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I love that we were able to connect with so many great people at the NEH workshop on, um, on the 1977 women's, uh, 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 I'm gonna forget the, the formal name of it. What was the- International Women's Year Conference. But yeah, 1977. Anyway, yeah. Um, I'm Kyle Sniani. I'm an associate professor in the history department at Illinois State University. I'm also, core faculty for the Women's Genders and Sexuality Studies program. Um, starting August 15th, I'll be a professor of history. <laughs> uh, oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's the first time I've announced that um, to anybody officially. So, uh, um, so that's kind of exciting. Um, oh, I'm, I'm honored. You, you, sound, you sound well rehearsed in that, in that introduction. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. And we're here to talk about this amazing book, um, Choosing to Care, a history, uh, uh, sorry, a century of child care and social reform in San Diego from 1850 to 1950. Um, it's on, I will put it this way so you can all see, it's on University of Nebraska Press. I loved this book. It really helped me think about uh, child care, um, the progressive movement, I thought more about uh, race and gender and class and labor in the United States. And this periodization was really interesting. Um, so one thing I'm always working with with my students is thinking about process versus product. So even though this is an amazing product, I wanted to go back to the early stages of your process and if you could introduce us to some of your initial questions and those first moments in research that made you start thinking, there's something here. Yeah. Can you take a second time? Yeah. So it really goes, so part of this is uh, I first um, really began to conceptualize it in my dissertation. And my dissertation research did a comparison of Detroit, Michigan in San Diego, California, as two tr uh, transborder cities. And, uh, and I was really looking at the progressive era, period. Um, but what I realized is that in working with the documents, the questions for San Diego kept popping into my head about 
what happened prior to the 1890s? You know, what uh, some of the sources started speaking to me about the 1850s when statehood started. And um, especially the, the, the documents that I found on indentured uh, um, servitude for indigenous uh, boys and girls. And that became this moment when I found that document on Frederico being indentured, that was a moment when I said, this is a much bigger, my, my questions need to encompass a much broader time frame than the progressive era. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that the concept of childcare needed to also be broader. I had been trained that childcare was in a facility, right? Mm -hmm. That it had been in um, nursery schools and day nurse, the original day nurseries and creches that had been developed in the, in, um, the US starting in the 1860s, 70s by these benevolent women. But what I realized and what I began to question was that Childcare is, is not about providing custodial care only during a time when someone is working. But how Americans were thinking about it was, how do we take care of impoverished children whose guardians are not available to them? Mm -hmm. So it's not just about labor, but it, it, for me, it became more about what's happening to these children whose parents and other guardians become absent in their life. And of course, with, with indigenous children, they became absent because of settler colonialism. <laughs> and, you know, so then that, that took on uh, such a complex concern for me and I wanted to, um, I felt like I really needed to pay attention to how these children from a variety of backgrounds um, were being treated by people in, in um, positions of power. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the, the, the power question starts looming in, um, differently than it does for um, those of us who study the progressive era Power is, of course, an important concept, but it became different for me when I um, layered onto that issues of settler col colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and since you've brought up um, this, this idea of the settler colonialism and um, the indigenous children, that's something that's really um, present in our minds lately, that just this week, I think, in the U.S., um, Secretary Deb Holland has announced that they'll be doing more research into and more studies of the uh, boarding school system in the U.S., and this is, of course, coming after the news in Canada of finding, finding the bodies of, of children from indigenous schools. What can your research um, tell us about this period or what would you want us to know, especially today as we're um, exploring the, this history? Yeah, one of the things that I think Deb Holland makes and other indigenous scholars have been making 
and um, for the last 20 years is that we need to study indigenous people. We need to um, study indigenous children's lives more thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And I think that this, um, that, that, that my study provides one small snippet of a much larger story about how indigenous families have been treated and mistreated and ignored and overlooked um, in, in, um, in US history, in American history, right? Mm -hmm. So I would like people to know that um, indentured servitude was a thing in California yeah. <laughs> in 1850. That indentured servitude uh, is not an 18th century a 17th and 18th century labor system, but that Anglos, uh, white who uh, um, created the state of California, uh, used it as a system to control indigenous populations, indigenous families. And that that was happening in the 1850s um, all the way up to the 1890s. Right when the reservation system was solidified. Mm -hmm. And so, and part of that, um, or I should say accompanying that indentured servitude system was uh, mission schools. I mean, you know, the missionaries are a, a, a very large part of California history, yeah. um, especially the uh, Catholic missionaries. Uh, but also Protestant missionaries. And so there were a good number of um, schools that were also being built for uh, indigenous uh, children um, starting in the 1860s and 70s. And there was a school that was built by the Catholic Church to remove indigenous children from the town of San Diego, which was new, it, you know, it was an emerging town in the 1860s and 70s. And the Anglos who were living there were fearful that their children would be going to school alongside indigenous children. And so the Catholic Church as a as sort of a protective, they, they thought of it as a protective mechanism, but, I, but there was also, of course, power, uh, um, evangelical power, uh, conversion power connected to building that school. And um, it, it removed children from, you know, the taunts of white people living in the town um, but it also removed them from their families. Right. You know, so it's, there's, there's, I would like us to know, I would, I would like um, people now to understand that there's a lot of history that's not been yet written. Mm -hmm. And the documents, I mean, I referred to this indentured document on Frederic that I found on Frederico. You know, they're hidden in the archives. Right. It's not going to jump out at you. I found that, you know, just by, it was in a file, um, indentured, it said indentured 1860s. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
what's going on? Indentured servitudes wasn't in the 1860s, you know, and it was this one court record. Um, and then I just had to, you know, that got me thinking. So I think as historians who study children and youth and families, it's very important for us to continue digging into this very um, sad history mm -hmm. of, of settler colonialism. Um, but the other, the other side to that is to also find the histories, you know, talk to indigenous families and learn about their survivals and how they protected their children. So there's also some really good scholarship about that. Um, I, does that make sense, Robin? Yeah, yeah that's great. And, and that got me thinking, especially for um, some of the emerging scholars, the young scholars out there, um, what advice do you have for doing this research and reading documents for the history of childhood when maybe the kids aren't leaving the sources. So how do you do, yes. how do you do this research? Yes. Great question. I have lots I can say about that. So <laughs> let me see if I can summarize it. So um, one of the collections that I found in the San Diego History Center are from a, an organization that was called the San Diego uh, um, Children's Center. And it was the first official day nursery that was built mm -hmm. in San Diego. It was built by benevolent women. It, um, it opened um, in 1889 with a couple of kids. It really opened in the 1890s. Um, and it's still in operation today, although under a different, uh, it, it, began serving children with mental health issues um, starting in the 1940s. And so, and it has retained that mission. Some of their early documents were, uh, were given to the San Diego History Center. And um, I used to work there. And I found this collection. It had been, you know, it's one of those dream things as a historian, yeah. that you find the unprocessed collection. Um, that happened to yes, me. <laughs> Dream and nightmare at the same time, right? <laughs> so uh, they, they were in the, the archivists were in the process of, of organizing it and they let me work with it. And there were hundreds of what the organization referred to as case records. And these case records mm -hmm. documented um, um, characteristics of the family and of the children. There was a case record for each child. Well, what I was able to piece together, it was from the perspective of the, or, of the, um, the matrons, right? And the childcare workers. But what I was able to piece together uh, was the children's voices because the, right, the, the matron would write, so-and-so missed her mommy today, or so-and-so ran away. And you know, I, I found incidences 
of children running away from these different um, um, facilities. There's mm -hmm. a great collection at the, um, in this special collections at San Diego State University Malcolm Library. And they document, they, they hold what was called the Associated Charities. Um, it, it, it became a different, it emerged into the Family Services Association. But their records document when children ran away from what was known as the Juvenile Detention Center. And, um, you know, in their meetings. So again, it wasn't the child's voice, but it mm -hmm. was the social workers and other volunteers in some instances recording sometimes very specifically uh, what they observed that these children in, the, in these um, centers were, were feeling or had revealed to them. So what I would recommend to people who are in their early careers, um, students, grad, uh, graduate students, that they, they need to sort of read between those lines and they have to understand that um, you're not gonna find a diary from a 10 year old little girl who's living in um, in a day nursery. Oh, so nice. <laughs> it would be so nice. But in this era, you're not going to find that. Right. You might find that from if you're looking at uh, the 1970s or the 1980s. Mm -hmm. However, those, you know, we have to deal with confidentiality issues right. as well. Um, so you really have to understand, this might sound weird, but um, you have to hang out with kids. When you're writing your materials, you have to observe how children interact with each other and how they interact with adults. And then, you know, take some notes on that and just observe that. And then go back to those observations that you might have found in those association records and say, huh, what was that little girl really trying to say to that daycare worker mm -hmm. when she said she missed her mommy? That might seem really obvious, but kids don't, you know, what, what we'll probably find um, is not something very specific like that you'll probably find something like um, uh, uh, Susie started collecting more feathers today than she did rocks. You know, I saw, I, I saw things like that. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So it was like, okay, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And, and what I, what I ended up doing with it is um taking notes on it and not analyzing it until I had really sat with it for a while. Um, Elliot West has written a really, you know, he, his work helped me. David Adams's work helped me. They've written on, on children and especially indigenous children in the West. Um, 
they've, uh, it, I think that they, uh, if you look at how children interact with adults, it's very different than how they interact with one another, mm -hmm. right? And so, so I had to just keep all of that in mind when I was thinking about, okay, what's the actual story here? I did find a, a, a family who had run away and I found it in those associated charities records, but then I found their cards earlier in the San Diego History Center records and I put the two and two together. It was like, oh, they, they're, and I, what I discovered was that their dad had been moving from job to job to job. Their mom got sick. They put their, the parents put their, their children in, in this boarding home and the 13 year old um, felt like she could take care of her, her younger siblings. So she ran away and then ran away to the boarding home to try to get her, her younger siblings. Oh so you just have to kind of piece it together. Yeah. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. This right. took me a really long time to write. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you being honest about that because I think sometimes we see the people who have a new book every two years and that's not I'm true. not that person. You're not that person. No. But this you know, was worth the wait, I want to say. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think especially other, so people also in, in their early careers maybe need to hear this, that I teach a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach at a large public, um, Illinois State University. I teach large classes. I teach small classes. Um, I, I have a, a large service load. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to say I'm in the trenches because I'm not adjunct faculty. They're the ones who are in the trenches. Although I was an adjunct in yeah. my early years. Yeah. yeah. So it's, um, it's really hard to do research when you're an adjunct mm -hmm. and it's really hard to get your book published when, um, when you have all these other things to do. So I kind of pieced it out. I did articles yeah, um, to kind of hear from colleagues. Okay. How does this, you know, am I on the right track mm -hmm. with things? And, um, you know, I got good feedback on, on my articles and mm -hmm. so knew that I was, had tapped into some things that could contribute. Yeah. Yeah. So all you younger scholars paying attention and, the message for for older scholars uh the struggle is real um so be kind to your adjuncts and your assistant professors your junior colleagues um so our time is really running short um but i have two more questions so um we'll try to get them in um so you acknowledge and you've talked a lot about how so much of the research happened in san diego and aside from choosing a topic very wisely, so you had to be at the beach very often, <laughs> why San Diego for this story? Because I think that was, an, it sort of became one of the characters. It, it, it is, San Diego is a character. Thanks for, for saying that. I, I hadn't used that word to describe it. Um, 
San Diego is often left out of the literature on the American West. People focus on Los Angeles, they focus on San Francisco. Uh, people think, often think that Southern California ends at Los Angeles. Um, San Diego was a, it is the eighth largest city in the country. Uh, it has a very complex history it's on the border of Mexico and, you know, it's, it's the border city. Um, there, there was a lot that was happening with railroad expansion, with uh, um, health seekers coming into the, uh, the city in the 1860s and 70s and beyond. The leisure community developed the military, uh, the military plays a very big story in San Diego's development. And few people have really looked at it. Um, no one had looked at it in terms of, of childcare. Um, Matt Bakavoy's study on, on um, the expositions, the two San Diego expositions in the early 20th century are, are really, his study is really good to look at how the population grew. Abe Schraggy has looked at the military, um, but no one has really looked at the, the social welfare development in that long hundred year period of time. There, there have been people who have looked at it in terms of the, the Journal of San Diego History publishes a lot of good scholarship it's a quarterly and you know there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of that journal but it's it it has not really figured as a central character in terms of immigration in terms of mm -hmm. of transborder international conflict uh, a lot of mexicans escaped the mexican revolution and came over into San Diego to work and as, ref, as war refugees that started happening in the 1910s. Um, African-Americans began to leave the South and move into San Diego because of the railroad connection. There was a railroad that went from Kansas City to San Diego and they were trying to escape the racism in Missouri, well, they, uh, they came to San Diego and found it there also. It was not a Mecca for them. They, right. uh, so there was a lot of Italian immigration, Portuguese. Uh, There's a lot of fishing, that um, the fishing trade, and then the canneries developed. So the, the population the new demographics that emerged from 1850 through World War II are, um, had never really been studied. Yeah. And the, you know, it what- really what comes across how diverse this story is. It's very diverse. Class, race, religion. I mean, it's, yeah. There's very interesting religious stories. Philosophical yeah. society, was centered in San Diego. So you have these um, alternative religious communities 
that are that are in the in the city. Um, you know, Helen Hunt Jackson uh, centered her key protagonist, Ramona, uh, uh, over a, uh, um, a situation that had happened in San Diego. There was a huge um, um, vice zone. So prostitution is also another character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. so much of the history, like so many of our current issues with human trafficking was yeah. in there. Uh, so much. Um, it was. It was really giving, giving me context. Um, immigration history and family separation. I mean, there's so much of our current world that has some context in this. Yes. Um, so for the last question, I wanted to come. I kept writing in my margins. I was writing like exclamation points and yes and you go girl and all of that and. <laughs> In one place in the introduction, you said, um, because the need for childcare has often been understood as an impermanent stage in a woman's life, employers and much of the larger society avoided seeing it as a benefit of employment and instead cast it in terms of social welfare. And while you put that in the past tense, I think you could put it in the present tense. Yeah. So we're emerging from a pandemic here in the US and hopefully globally, but in the US, this means lots of discussions about um, when and whether parents will return to paid employment, especially mothers. Um, and I was wondering, um, I, I kept hearing echoes um, as I was reading this, I kept feeling the presence. So what should we learn from your book to apply to, to today? Yeah, so one of the things that is important for us to understand is first of all, childcare, is expensive to provide. If you're going to do it right, you need to have professionals um, providing that childcare and you need to pay them as professionals. So a lot of people still have this understanding that childcare is babysitting, mm -hmm. that is done, you know, it was like people are on their phones twiddling and the kids are in the, I mean, it's like, no, 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 no. These are professional workers who are trained. They have degrees. They know what they're doing. They are developing uh, these children's minds and their motor skills and the emergency nursery school movement um, that was led by early childhood educators in the 1920s and 30s. They tried to explain that to the federal government. Um, but one of the problems, Robin, is that with the emergency nursery schools through the New Deal, and then the childcare centers through World War II's Lanham Act, people got this idea, people and employers and the government got this idea that childcare should only be supported by the governments under emergency situations. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that childcare is not emergency care, mm -hmm. it's everyday care. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out a way for children, for infants, for, for, for parents to be able to explore their career options to be able to engage in the labor market and afford infant care. Mm -hmm. Infant care is, you know, 2,000 up to 5,000 a month. Right. 
but people can't afford that. Who can afford that? You know, some brokers in, in, um, in, in New York city. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that the, the cost of childcare, we have to reckon with that. Mm -hmm. And we have to reckon with paying our, um, our childcare workers a professional wage. Mm -hmm. And until America embraces that, I think it's going to be very difficult to move beyond this understanding of, of um, well, why is it so expensive? Mm -hmm. You know, so, so that's, that's one thing. I think a second thing that, that I learned from this book and that I hope others take away from it is that, uh, well, first, childcare is here to stay. I mean, we need it. Yeah, um, as long as we're children. <laughs> yeah, but I learned in the documents that a lot of fathers were desperate for, for childcare, right? Mm -hmm. And we've, we've, I made that statement about mothers because childcare has been incredibly gendered. Mm -hmm. We think of it as only women, as only mothers and their sisters or, or grandmothers who are taking care of children. I think if we expand it to parents, yeah. if we begin to understand that men need childcare, yeah. the conversation might change a little bit. <laughs> I think so. Right? Because yeah. we've seen that conversation change when it comes to other issues, reproductive rights, right. wage <laughs> equity, you know, I mean, we can go on and on, but mm -hmm. perhaps if, and, and that's one of the things that I really, I hope that people take away from this study is that I found a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who I had a question about that, but we didn't have time for it, but yeah. I fit it in. <laughs> <laughs> but you Yay. know, yeah, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been tweeting every day about childcare. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's her thing that she's decided that that's what she's going to tweet about. And I love it. Um, and I hope she continue, I hope people continue to, to understand that childcare is not going away. The need for it is not going away. Right. And the answer yeah. is not for parents to be unemployed. Right. That's, you know, yeah. so um, it probably means that our taxes need to go up a little bit so that the federal and the state governments can provide a little bit more support. Right now, a lot of philanthropies provide funding for nonprofits who provide, um, for instance, the, the, um, the organizations that had their foundations in the settlement house movement. So in mm -hmm. San Diego, that's the neighborhood house. Um, those organizations are, are nonprofits. And so they continue, you know, the Boys and Girls Aids, the Boys and Girls Societies and all of these, the YWCAs and the YMCAs, they're doing their thing still, right? Yeah. They're providing a lot of care, but mm -hmm. it's philanthropic. Yeah. So I think, you know, we need to shift that a little. We need to shift that. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sorry we've we've run out of time, but I hope um, the people who are who are viewing this will read this book and continue to have questions and ask these questions about history as well as our present, because I think it's really there's a lot in here that um, that is it's a great story and it it really does so it's it's shaping the way I think about current issues, but it's also shaped the way I think about the past. Um, so I want to thank you for, for all of the very hard work you put in this, even though I do not feel sorry for you for having to be in San Diego so much. <laughs> Thanks. I'm a little sad. <laughs> yeah, I miss it. I'm not there now, but I miss it. Oh, well. I see you. Good to see you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online at shcy.org.